Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 81. It's a new year and what better time to recap what artificial intelligence and you is all about, especially since we have a lot more new listeners now. Our New Year's resolution at AINU is to bring you the best guests, the best questions and the best answers about AI and how it will change your life, your job and your world. And my resolution is to get my new book finished. It will also be called Artificial Intelligence and You, and it will follow the same purpose and themes of this show, which are what? We know you're smart, but that's not enough to make sense out of where AI is and where it's going. So we're exploring this together, finding out what's real and useful information that helps you understand what AI is and all the incredible number of facets that it touches or will touch in our lives. There's really no area that won't be affected. I like to say that I can take this from computer science to theology in 30 seconds. We range from what AI is doing in our world now, in business, politics, media, research, talking with experts working in those areas today, to where it will or might go in the near future and beyond when we engage philosophers, transhumanists, and science fiction authors to open our minds to what's possible. Speaking of possible, I try as much as possible not to take a position on AI like Many people will have as their message that AI is wonderful, the future is glorious, and then their whole narrative has to fit with that. So you're never sure whether you're getting an unbiased view from them or one that's been sanitized to fit that story. And of course, there are those on the other side as well, and they're going to have a hard time reporting anything that suggests that fears are overblown. I don't want to call myself an optimist or a pessimist. I want to call myself a realist. I like to tell people, AI isn't a good thing, it isn't a bad thing, it's a big thing, and you need to understand it. On to today's guest, Tanya Jarjal. She is a technology author, keynote speaker, AI futurist, and UAE chapter lead for the global women in tech movement. She's also the resource manager at VMware and a technology contributor at Forbes Middle East. She called in all the way from Dubai to talk about her new book, Thinking Machines, AI and the Intelligence Explosion, which was published last month. Here is Tanya Jarjal. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your platform. So you've got a new book coming out. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So over the past four years, I spent a lot of time just sort of contemplating and trying to envision what the world would look like in a post-AI technological era, right? And in many ways, I think the reason that appeals to me is because I'm drawn in by existential questions and I'm drawn in by not just technological implications, but also the philosophical and psychological implications that they can have on society. So I actually began writing about this topic where, you know, I started to explore what I call the ethical, existential and practical implications of tech on society around four years ago. 
And somewhere along the line, I realized that I've written a lot of content on it, published a lot of content on it, and that a lot of people, peers in my circle, as well as within the technology industry, which is where I work at VMware, were really drawn into by the ideas that I was talking about. And for them, it was an opportunity to kind of get the conversation starting. And I realized that I think everyone needs to be in on the conversation now. It's not just for scientists or technologists. We all kind of need to have nuanced discussions around what it means to live in this world. And that's where the motivation came for writing my book. So in some ways, it's a compilation of a lot of the work that I've done over the past four years. So let's trace this back to your history, because I'm always fascinated by the ways that people get into this kind of work. And you talked about the existential questions. Mm -hmm. Few people grow up learning about AI in school. So where was the point that this connected for you, that you became interested in AI, that became more than something that was in the news or that it was academic, but that it had to be part of your world? Absolutely. For me, it was a very pivotal and distinctive point during my journey. So I wanted to become a lawyer. So I went to university and I was sure I wanted to become a lawyer. And the reason that I chose the law path was because I thought I was a decent writer, a decent orator. I did well in literature and psychology, and it would be the sensible path. But somewhere along the line, I think it was in my second or third year at university, I mean, I was always very curious about the big questions, kind of like how the universe works, what physics and laws govern the nature of our universe. And so I was exploring the works of what I call intellectual heroes, people like Steven Pinker, Brian Greene, Brian Cox, and for me, the most important of them, Ray Kurzweil, who is the former director of engineering at Google and one of the best known predictors of future technology. So when I was in my third or second year at university, I read The Singularities Near, and that had a dramatic impact on the way that I thought about the world. And I realized that actually what I'm drawn in by is what the future of work especially could look like in this post-automation world. And I was filled with a sense of optimism that, and I felt lucky that I felt that we now, my generation, future generations, and the current working generation have the opportunity to do the kinds of jobs that our ancestors wouldn't have possibly even conceived of, right? And I thought that was a really exciting sort of area to explore. And that was the pivotal moment. I dropped my ambitions of wanting to be a lawyer and I decided I'm going to go work in tech. Mm. But I want to draw the distinction between being interested in and fascinated by something because there's a huge list of things that fascinate me and yeah. wanting to do something about it, wanting to make a shift in the world with that. What is the shift in the world that revealed itself to you that you want to make? Excellent distinction, because for me, the fascination grew when I was in university, but the shift in the world came through my work. And somewhere along the line, when I was at VMware, I was leading digital transformation. I'm at VMware, actually. Initially, I was leading digital transformation projects, right, where we were helping customers move to the cloud and large entities here within the Middle East. And one thing that I saw was that this automation or the code, the software that they were adopting was actually kind of changing the sort of day-to-day -day jobs of the IT administrators that worked within those teams. In some ways, it was making it more exciting, more creative. And meanwhile, I was having an existential crisis at work, right, where I was thinking, okay, I'm here, I'm in this corporate space, yet I'm not feeling heavily fulfilled. 
And that's when I started to research and I learned about this whole concept of flow, right, through Stephen Kotler and those uh, visionaries. And I thought, you know, I'm not in a flow state because I have all this energy, all this fascination and interest, and it's not channeled in a way that I want it to be channeled. And that's where my motivation came. At the same time, I was reading about Gallup polls were saying that around 86% of employees are partially or fully disengaged at work. And I was thinking, what is this massive waste of human productivity, right? How many people out there are feeling what I'm feeling, have not channeled their passions into doing fulfilling work? And what does that mean for our, obviously, our economic state, but also our mental state, right, as individuals? And how that ties into AI for me is that for me, that possibility of moving away from doing routine mundane work into an era where the primary creators of economic value could be things like imagination and creativity, things that are often said to fulfill us, is actually quite an exciting place to be. So for me, that that motivation comes into having to do something with that, right? Because, of course, there's some risks that come with implementing AI in organizations, which is short-term job displacement. And I don't know the answers yet, but I'm passionate about the sort of policies that we could potentially build to protect people and to sort of tap into the power of these tools for the better. Funny you should mention flow. I was just talking about that a couple of episodes ago and mm -hmm. how these interviews for me are a way of getting into the flow state. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Talk about the audience that you want to reach for this. Who in particular are you writing for? So for me, you know, it's a question I've kind of pondered a few times. The motivation who I'd ideally like to read this is probably a more younger, susceptible audience that's concerned about what their future may look like, right? What sort of jobs they may want to do or have the opportunity to do in the future, what industries may exist in the future, and what this whole idea of replicating our intelligence in intelligence systems means for the human condition, right? And I think that especially for the younger generation, that's particularly important. Now, the book is not written in a particular style that, you know, it's not in a textbook style. It's not something that only a young person would enjoy reading. But that's my motivation, right? Equally, the blurb of the book states quite explicitly that the book is intended for anyone who has an interest in science, technology, and the future of humanity. So the whole goal is to make the topic more accessible because it's such a black box. And at this point, it's become such a buzzword that I think people who don't know enough about it are sort of intimidated about asking, right? So it's also for the average person who may not have explored this before, but is curious to see how it may be relevant to them. Talking about uh, young people's reaction to this, they remind me of something I was just reading by Sherry Turkle, where she describes talking to a 13-year-old uh, girl named Deborah who had been learning programming for a year and then described the process as, there's a piece of your mind and now it's a piece of the computer's mind. That's, that's so fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I love that. It's a very accessible description for children who are learning programming. And I see in your bio that you're the chapter lead for the UAE, for the Global Women in Tech Movement. And mm -hmm. can you describe what in particular the women that you interact with as a result of that function, that role, mm -hmm. most need to hear or do or change as a result of what you are learning and doing with AI? Yeah, absolutely. So I think specifically in this region where I am, but I think it's a global thing as well, when it comes to having just more diverse voices in the, in the space, there aren't enough. 
And the whole point of my motivation to run the Women in Tech chapter is to encourage more and more women to speak up. If you have an opinion, say something about it. And part of that is because it's not just for women. Of course, I think that it should equally apply across all groups, all members of society or of a population. But in this space, it's lacking, right? And that's because I'm in the Middle East and it's in some ways we haven't had the same progression historically, right? And so that's why it's relevant here. And the government has actually, the Dubai government has a big push for this. And the Women in Tech chapter was launched in collaboration with one of the governments of the Emirates because they're actually trying to advocate for this. When it comes to the AI space, I think, especially now, it's important that we have a bit of nuance around talking about it, right? Especially because it's become such a buzz. And so for anyone who works in any relevant industry, right, whether it's management consulting, whether it's even something like energy or something like software and cloud, we need to be able to have a general and basic understanding of it. It's almost like they say younger generations will start to code and learn coding languages in the same way that we learned other languages. Similarly, I think having that basic scientific and technological jargon will become relevant to everyone. And that includes women in society. Now, that's one outlet through which I can make an impact. And that's why I've taken on that role. But there's so many other ways to do it and so many other people who kind of need to hop on that, right? It's not exclusive to women, in my view. With respect to the adoption and development and research of AI in the Middle East, are there any initiatives there, any projects, any particular work that's being done that has caught your attention? Absolutely. For me, one of the most fascinating ones is it's known as the Mohammed bin Zayed University for Artificial Intelligence. It was recently appointed. It's a new research university, and they're calling specifically researchers, PhDs, potentially to be a part of their community. And they're quite new, so they have quite a startup culture. And they've actually recently appointed Eric Singh, who's the former head of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. And so they're trying to build a real global community. They're building partnerships with other governments, including the Singaporean government, And most importantly, they really have this culture of wanting to be a research hub within the region. They're located just outside of Dubai in the next Emirate, Abu Dhabi. And I can really see them infiltrating forward, right? They're doing a lot around educating executives within the government sector on AI. And a lot of the work that I'm passionate about, they're kind of creating curriculum around that. So for me, that really caught my attention. Is there something that you would like to see them devote resources to in that region that hasn't happened yet, but could? Something that you might advocate for? Absolutely. In my view, we here, generally, this region needs to advocate for more homegrown innovation. And they're doing it, right? But we still don't have a lot of R&D hubs specifically that are creating, you know, exciting things, right? They're creating groundbreaking technologies. Yes, you have researchers working on specific things who are probably who have labs and who are building algorithms around in specific fields like computer vision or NLP, right? But to have a culture of innovation, which is, I think, what the government wants, would be fantastic to have that be a more explicit outcome. What sort of limiting beliefs or misbeliefs about artificial intelligence do you encounter the most often that you would like to and working on correcting? Yeah. So I would say we're very easily susceptible as it's in our human psychology to what the headlines say. And we've all seen the headlines, right? It's rife with negativity in some ways. And that's because bad news sells. And some of that includes things like (laughs) beware, the robocalypse is coming. Machines are here to take your jobs. For me, that's a narrative that we really need to start to think about. We need to zoom out and see this from a big picture perspective, because 
at many other points in human history, we've been really worried about technological change. And I think at the individual level, this pervades people, it causes anxiety. But even at an organizational level, there's a little bit of resistance to change because we believe that automation will take away our jobs. And this has happened in the past in the industrial era and pre-industrial era, especially when we were inventing new technologies. But the truth is that so far, technology has proven in many ways to be a resource liberating source, which creates more jobs and has the ability to cause more economic value. And it's proven to be beneficial for the people who are working within it, right? So it's proven to often create more jobs rather than remove jobs in the long run. And to be able to see that, one has to zoom out and see things from a cosmic perspective, a big picture perspective, right? Which is to see things on the grand scale of things rather than in a granular way. So generally, when it comes to thinking about the evolution of AI, and I say this even to skeptics who are unsure about whether or not we'll reach that stage of general AI, where AI will match human level intelligence, I say, try to think of this from a big picture perspective, because we kind of need to get rid of that linear thinking of just thinking within our lifespans and think about what happened before and what's yet to come. And you were talking there about effects upon jobs, and there's this dichotomy in AI talking about it creating lots of new jobs and erasing lots of jobs. And some people say both and both at the same time or one now, one later. Where do you stand on that prediction? It's hard to say. I would certainly, I think it's going to be both, right? And the reason I say that is because in some ways, this particular technology, AI, is different from previous technologies. So no doubt there will be repercussions that are felt way and beyond our local communities. And that will include short-term job displacement. So the way that I like to think of it is what's going to happen in the short term and what's going to happen in the long term. In the long term, if we focus on specific things like educational reform and reskilling people, we'll be able to have more skilled jobs, more fulfilling jobs, and we'll be able to sort of ensure that people are able to do those jobs, right? The mass majority of people. In the short term, there will be a bit of job displacement, but this is where the role of policymakers and the field of technology policy becomes even more relevant because we need government intervention almost, right? It's not just a private entity thing. My view is you need that intersection to think about how to protect individuals in the short term and then still maintain a sense of optimism for what could happen in the long run. And you mentioned education reform there. Have you done anything in that respect and at what level? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when it comes to education reform, I mean, I try to include education reform in all of my initiatives, even through the Women in Tech program, we're specifically launching a series of events in collaboration with universities and in collaboration with, with the government entities like the Sharjah Research and Technology Entrepreneurship Park to run future-focused programs, right, to help people build future fluencies. But more actively, I've been involved with an education startup known as Or Academy that was acting as a complement supplement to traditional high schools. And at Academy, what we really saw was that traditional high school curricula, we felt, was just no longer relevant for the current technological era, right? We felt that we need to create multidisciplinary curriculum and we need to equip young minds with the sort of skills, values, and competencies that'll allow them to thrive in this era of what we call exponential change. And that's because the sort of jobs that they'll do are not similar to the sort of jobs that our ancestors did. If we think of something like being a virtual reality architect, right, that requires computational thinking, but it also requires artistry, and it also requires 
knowing a bit of physics and a bit of obviously knowing your actually how to use devices in, in, in an efficient way. And these are things that we need to focus on teaching young minds, but also at our academy and through the work that I've done with education reform, we focus on fulfillment. So we focus on things like teaching young minds how to deal with life, love, death, philosophy, things that we largely ignore in traditional schools. And this is something that's very important to me too, because I've got two daughters who will be in high school in a few years. And so I'm deeply invested in looking at how the traditional educational paradigm won't work because they will be needing to educate themselves for jobs that don't exist yet. By the time they mm -hmm. get out of the higher education system, they will most likely want to enter jobs that I can't predict and maybe no one else can. And so how do you prepare for that? Have you had experience with working with children where you talk to them about this? What sort of things do you say? What sort of things do they say? Absolutely, on multiple occasions, right? Specifically through the education startup that I'm involved in, we've run what are known as future fluency workshops where students who are currently enrolled in traditional high schools in Dubai or in the UAE spend their Saturdays, which is the weekends, uh, with us. And they're learning in a completely different way, right? We're teaching them things like critical thinking. We're teaching them things like scientific literacy. We're teaching them how to do basic stuff like know when source whether an article is fake news or not. And we're encouraging them to solve global grand challenges by tapping into the technological tools that they have. So we essentially we were trying to build young innovators, right, who can build MVPs, who can think creatively and sort of be at that edge innovation forefront. And the, the amazing thing has been the feedback from the young minds. They are so, though they're spending four or six hours with us and they're, you know, it's interactive, they're socializing, they're working on their projects, they're so invigorated, which is incredible. And through some of the talks that I've done, especially at schools, most recently at an all-girls school in the UK, most young minds still have this question of what should we do in the future? And something that I always like to tell them is try not to focus on what the career path should be or what a job title should be, but rather on what skills you want to cultivate and what problems in the world bother you. And then you see where that takes you and what you want to do with it, especially because the future is so unpredictable, like you said. I think there's a statistic from McKinsey or the World Economic Forum that says that 65% of the jobs that primary age students, children will do in the future don't even exist yet, right? Mm. Just mind-blowing. What sort of relationship do they have at that age with artificial intelligence? That's a great question because when it comes to, I think a broader question is what relationship do they have with any technology? And like I said before, Learning basic coding skills and basic abilities to be able to sort of coexist with these uh, systems will be absolutely important, especially at the school level. And that's part of why we need guides and teachers or mentors who are able to sort of prepare them to do this, right? So we'll have to even redefine the role of the teacher, which is something I, I care about. But specifically there, I think the interaction that young people will have with AI is that they will live in a world where it's almost as if they coexist with them, right? So for me, when I think of my device, which iPhones and smartphones only exploded in the last seven years or so, I think of it as an extension of my neocortex. And I think we can take that almost 
to another level when we have the ability to be surrounded by intelligent systems. So in some ways, for them, it'll be a way of outsourcing parts of their intelligence so that they can focus on other parts, which is exciting, but which is also why it's so important for us to be able to educate young people on what they should be focusing on then and what can potentially be outsourced to intelligent machines. You remind me of an experience I had that showed me how much it's part of their world now. I was talking to a middle school group about the space program and the reason that we explore other planets and look for life and talked about different aspects of what qualifies as life and then mentioned intelligence. And I said, can you have life without intelligence? And well, yes, of course you can. Lots of life is not intelligent. And then just on a whim, I said, can you have intelligence without life? And they all looked at me like, well, yeah, of course you can. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, AI. Like everyone knew that. Oh, that's interesting. And so that's just part of the air that they breathe now. And I'm wondering particularly what insights you have into the fact that children are going to have to solve some pretty big problems in a world that we're leaving for them. Climate change is the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And we're basically handing it over to them and saying, look, we messed this up. We're no good at this. You fix it. And at the same time, artificial intelligence will be growing by leaps and bounds to become this unknown thing that's somewhere from a part of our brain to an existential threat. How do you Mm -hmm. think that relationship will play out in the context of people coming of age in a world where they've got to solve these global crises? I think one of the most fascinating perspectives that impacted the way that I think about these issues is the cosmic perspective. And the amazing thing about space exploration and the overview effect, right, which is what astronauts experience when they leave Earth's ARP orbit. The amazing thing about technological progress and space exploration and that field is that, and probably one of the most exciting use cases of AI, is that we may be able to take that impact, the overview effect, cosmic perspective, and democratize it, right? So bring it to everyone and help them understand what it could feel like. And that could be either through sending humans through space, of course, or it could be through the implementation of like immersive VR, right? Where we can actually experience what that feels like and have that psychological shift in our mindset. And the reason that that psychological shift is so important is because I think it'll cause our future generations to reprioritize and think about what's important and what isn't important. And that's where, you know, we break down ideologies and unity comes into play and we prioritize it. Okay, climate change is a real problem for us. We need to get the whole world to agree and recognize that that's the case, which we're currently struggling with. And that's part of the mess that we'll leave behind for future generations. But I think once we kind of have that ideological shift on a planetary level, there's some reason for optimism. And when it comes to the interaction with AI, the way that I like to see it, and I think I've learned this from some AI researcher, the name slips my mind, is that we'll eventually build the wise cyborgs of the future, right? Now, whether or not it'll be an actual existential threat, it's hard to say because all experts disagree about how exactly AI will evolve, right? in the sense that how fast we'll reach that level of general AI and whether or not general AI will have goals that are different from our goals. So that's definitely a large uncertainty and it's an existential threat that we can discuss and kind of prepare young minds for psychologically so that all the outcomes are sort of come panned out so we're prepared for any possibility. But generally speaking, I think what's going to happen is that we'll essentially create the wise cyborgs of the future. So in many ways, you know, technological singularity is here to come and we'll 
merge with machines in some ways. And the reason for that is because ultimately, come what may, we'll find solutions to global grand challenges. And I think at least a lot of human beings are motivated by altruistic outcomes and by preserving the state of humanity. Maybe not all, but that inherently exists in our psychology, I like to believe. And that will hopefully prevent us from total catastrophe. And talking about these grand visions and the future here sort of leads us mm -hmm. towards a natural conclusion. When you're talking about merging with machines, I'm aware of this bifurcation in listenership in that there are the technical people who are going, sounds cool to me. And mm -hmm. then there is a lot of other people who are terrified by that notion. And can you say anything about that that would put it in a context that dilutes perhaps some of that fear? I like to think of it as what we're doing today with AI, right? Today, we have AI that can create art. And we have these incredible artists that are coming together to create some amazing visions of what the future might look like. And it's those people who will be at the forefront and pinnacle of what could happen. So we tend to think that if AI can write music at the very basic level, create art and write articles, that the value of a human being will be nothing in society, right? And we'll pale in comparison to artificial intelligence that can potentially do it better than us. But in reality, what's happening today that we see already, and I would highly recommend a book to audience members who are interested in exploring this by Arthur Miller, who wrote The Artist in the Machine. He's one of the leading thinkers on AI and creativity. What I would recommend is explore that because what you learn is about these amazing and mind-blowing projects that are happening where humans are already merging with intelligent machines or with AI, with algorithms to create mind-blowing, astonishing works of art. And I think that's what we'll do with all the other industries as well, right? That's what we'll do to solve problems. That's what we'll do to deal with existential crises like climate change. Fantastic. I really like the way that you framed that there. Okay, the book is Thinking Machines, AI and the Intelligence Explosion. Tanya Jarjal, how do you want people to be able to find the book and to follow you and find out more about what you're doing? The best way to follow what I do is on either Twitter or LinkedIn. So my LinkedIn is first name, last name, Tanya Jarjal, Tanya with two Ns. I'm on Twitter at at T-A-N-N-Y-A-D-J. And that's where I'll be posting the link to my book, which is going to be published on Amazon in December. Terrific. Thank you very much for coming on Artificial Intelligence and You. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Peter. It's been my pleasure. That's the end of the interview. There are so many different personalities and roles working in and around AI now. And I love connecting with people like Tanya who can talk about how she relates AI to her circles. You can find her book on Amazon, and there's a link in the show transcript. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, Alibaba, which is like the Amazon of China, and has an R&D branch called Damo Academy, announced earlier this year that they had built a multimodal, multitasking language model with one trillion parameters. That's five times the size of GPT-3. But then, it gets interesting, they reduced its energy consumption by 80% and increased its efficiency by a factor of 11. But the real news is in what they did later to improve those numbers because they increased it to 10 trillion parameters and reduced the energy consumption to 1% of GPT-3. You know, 
It's easy to get blasé tossing around these factors of improvement, but where else do you see this sort of change? Did your airplane travel three times as fast to its destination this year? Is your car's fuel efficiency improved by a factor of 10? Are you eating a quarter of what you used to? Those kinds of off-the-charts numbers belong exclusively to a small number of exponential technologies of which AI is the poster child. These developments are highly significant in a world where training a large language model is so energy-intensive that it contributes measurably to the carbon crisis. Next week, I'll be talking with Kush Varshney, a distinguished research staff member with IBM Research at the Thomas J. Watson Research Center, where he leads the machine learning group in the Foundations of Trustworthy AI Department, which is right in line with his new book, Trustworthy machine learning, and so we'll be talking about how you can trust an AI. Or maybe you shouldn't. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control, and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening. <laughs>